Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can inspire and motivate and make our world more just, equitable, and inclusive. But too often, marketing perpetuates the status quo for a select few rather than disrupting it for the greater good of all. This show looks to change that. Join me, your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, as we usher in a new era of marketing, an era of marketing for good. One of the core tenets of marketing for good is that it be anti-racist. So this term comes to us from Ibram Kendi. And in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he's a prolific writer, a wonderful, wonderful, gracious writer. In his book, he says, racial inequity is a problem of bad policy, not bad people. And he goes on to say on the website, whereas racist research historically has posed the question, what is wrong with people? Anti-racist research now asks a different and better question, what is wrong with policies? This got me thinking, by extension, what is wrong with our marketing? In what ways does it perpetuate racism rather than dismantle it? And one of the things about anti-racism is that it has to be very deliberate, very proactive. It's not going to happen on its own. What we know as a universal law is that you know entropy is like the, the biggest force uh, that we have, right? The status quo will perpetuate itself unless it is disrupted. And so Kate Slater, my guest on today's episode, is a, an anti-racist. She's white. She's an anti-racist educator and scholar. And I've had the great good fortune of attending some of her trainings. And in one of them, she said, every mission statement should have the word anti-racist. in." And I thought, I get, I get where you're going with that. However, is it meant to be in the mission statement? Does it have to be in the mission statement? So, so the question that we grapple with in this conversation is, where does it make sense for the word and the work of anti-racism to show up in your messaging. And so if you haven't listened to episode 26 on the messaging matrix, I would encourage you to, to listen to that because we, we reference it extensively in this conversation, you know, like I, you know, should it show up your values or is it the vision statement or is it the purpose or the mission? Like, where does it fit? This is going to be different for every organization right? What I'm hoping is that you will listen to this episode and be inspired to wonder about it, to work through it, even through the uncomfortableness um, that, the, that these conversations inevitably surface. Can you work through that in your organization to figure out where it makes sense for you? Where does it make sense for you? So take this as, as hopefully inspiration and some motivation and a little bit of fodder for those conversations. Kate has so much to offer in this realm She's a deep thinker and an active doer in the in the world of anti-racism. So I, as always, hope that you will enjoy this episode as much as, as much as I did. And with that, let's turn our attention to Kate Slater. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of the Marketing for Good podcast. With me today is Kate Slater. Kate is a white anti-racist educator and scholar. 
She is currently, this is a new role, so congratulations. I'm super excited for you, Kate. She's currently the Assistant Dean of Graduate Student Affairs at Brandeis University. Previously, she worked for the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers, a nonprofit that promotes social justice and diversity in the American educational system. She's also a lecturer on the history of race and racism at the University of New Hampshire, where her research centers the experiences of underrepresented minoritized students who attend predominantly white institutions. She conducts trainings on white supremacy in the workplace for both K through 12 and higher education organizations, as well as numerous private companies. And we met, much to my great delight, because you were doing trainings for the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance, where I'm on faculty. And um, through that training, there was some, at some point, and you, you very passionately, which I so appreciate, anybody else who gets as worked up and passionate about mission statements as I do, I'm like, oh, my people. And so you were like, anti-racism should be in every mission statement. I was like, oh, that's intriguing. <laughs> Let's talk about that. So that, that is a bit about Kate and a bit about how this conversation came to be. And I'm so grateful for you taking time to educate all of us, uh, myself uh, and all of the listeners on this. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. Will you share, I mean, it's it's a little unusual to be a white anti-racist educator and scholar. Mm. Can you share with us how that how that came to be? Sure, sure. What is it Bob Ross says? He says that it's a happy accident, um, I guess <laughs> is the way I would put it. it. And it really was by accident. But I think that my meandering pathway into anti-racist work actually is is symptomatic of why so few white people are invested in this work. And in that, I mean, I was in my mid to late 20s before racism as endemic in American society even occurred to me. Just to give a little bit of context, I grew up in Maine, which is, you know, one of the whitest states in, in the union. I went to predominantly white schools my entire life. My friend group is predominantly white. My workplaces were entirely white. My colleagues were entirely white, if not predominantly, then entirely. And I say that to say because it was only when I got to my job at the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers that it was the first time that I had ever not only been in spaces with predominantly people of color, but where I had ever begun to connect the dots in terms of the way that racism operates in this society. So to give a little background story about the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers, it is this incredible, incredible nonprofit. You all should check it out. And what they do is they attempt to address the uh, racial disparities in the educational systems in this country. So as many folks know, teaching faculties, both in K-12 and higher education, predominantly white and predominantly white women by a huge margin. So the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers said that we recognize one of the major barriers in terms of teachers and educators getting into the sector is entering grad school, persisting in grad school, and then getting the professional development and holistic support that they need to make long lasting change and be social justice educators. So what we did at the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers is we support scholars in pursuing masters and PhD prog programs, and we help them through the entire application process, help them with a lot of career support and professional development, with an eye towards essentially beginning to dismantle some of those major racial disparities in the higher education sector. So I say all that to say that this was the first time in my life when I came to this job at 26, 
that I ever confronted terms like systemic racism, that I ever began to think about the ways in which racism permeates all of these different sectors in our country. And the only reason that I was beginning to confront these systems is because for the first time in my life, I was the minority as a white woman in these spaces. And that was a profound experience for me because first of all, it set me on the trajectory to start doing the anti-racist work that I do, but also to understand the systems of racism, the history of them, the ways in which they play off each other in the housing market, in the economic sector, in education. But also it really enabled me to see for the first time how easy it was as a white woman to insulate myself in a predominantly, if not completely white world. And that is where things began to click for me in terms of doing anti-racist work. This was such a, this was such a rude awakening for me to go to the IRT and realize how, how my white privilege made itself manifest in my world. And so recently I started to say, well, how can I bring that moment of understanding or that moment of clarity to other people? And I mean, specifically white people. You know, as we know, the workforce, uh, especially in education, is still predominantly white. Um, when we look at the breakdown of, of racial makeup in CEOs and CFOs in America, when I say predominantly white, I mean 99% white. So these are still very deeply rooted systems that we have to be cognizant of and we have to confront. So I say all that to say that where my lane has been, certainly over the past year, is in helping white people begin to understand what their own privilege looks like and how it makes itself manifest in their workplace, in their day-to-day -day interactions. And then from there, how can they begin to dismantle that white privilege? How can they begin to, for lack of a better word, use their privilege for the powers of good and, and really begin to, to do some racial repair for the deep-seated inequities and, and quite frankly, the horrific legacy of oppression and violence that exists in this country that's racially based. Thank you for, <laughs> and on that note, on that light and on that note, note. <laughs> it's always fascinating to hear somebody's journey and their lived experience mm. and then to hear, you know, where, how, what you decide to do with those moments. And we have a whole episode for folks who are interested on the language of racism um, with Fleur Larson. So I do want to, I want to define the term anti-racism but for folks who, maybe for whom all of this is a little new and you're like, Whoa, you might pause, give this one a little pause, go listen to one with Fleur, because we, we, we really dug into what all they mean. And, and the other thing I just want to offer to listeners right now is, uh, you know, I'm sure some folks are like, I don't want to hear this. <laughs> White folks, you know, I don't <laughs> want to hear this. And to really, and this is still hard uh, for me to wrap my head around, is to not take it entirely personally. Right. So that when we're talking about systemic racism, that is pervasive, but it's not it. But, but you can make a personal individual contribution to unraveling that. So that that piece around repair, we do have a sense of agency. We can as white people do something about it. But, the, you know, and I think going through this like deep guilt and shame and lots of other things is a little bit part of this process as white folks. And just finally, when when the veil is lifted, it is this really wild ride of you're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh. I always think about jaywalking because uh, I was, and this is, I mean, this, I was like, maybe I wasn't even 20 yet. And a friend of mine who was black, we were at a intersection. And I, of course, started jaywalking and they did not join me. And I was like, and they were like, I'm black. And mm -hmm. it, took, it took 
two decades solid before I re- came back to that. And that's when I thought, oh, well, there was, there was my white privilege and my jaywalking. Mm-hmm. But every single time since, <laughs> I, you know, it's like very concrete. Um, Absolutely. But I just want to say to listeners, you know, when I want to acknowledge this is not always comfortable. And yet, if you're going to be committed to marketing for good, anti-racism is, is going to be at the core of that going forward, I hope and believe. So let's define it. So this term anti-racism comes from Ibram Kendi, who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he says, and I quote, but there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is not in between safe space for, quote, not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that for us? Absolutely. Because that's like, whoa. That's the core at that's that's yeah. really essentially at the core of of what it is that I'm trying to do. And you're, you know, Erica, your term agency is is a perfect way to describe that. Um, so to unpack unpack the idea of anti-racism, I think what many white folks maybe for the first time realized, especially this this past summer, in light of the racial reckoning, is that all of their lives, when they've thought, I have not been actively racist, define that however you will. I have not actively harmed people of color. I don't say racist things in company. You know, I donate to organizations. They have thought, white people have thought, that is enough. That is me not being racist. So I'm not, con- I'm not contributing to the problem actively. I'm not a good what- person. Exactly. So we can sort of paraphrase a lot of that. As- exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. There's there's kind of this 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 false equivalency of if you're not racist, you are a good moral person. And what I think many white folks have especially realized in in light of the racial reckonings this past summer is that they're by not doing anything, they are still contributing to the harm. By not being actively anti-racist, by not interrupting racism, by not not just being neutral, but actively fighting for the side of good aka anti-racism, they are actually continue to be part of the problem. And one of the things that that has really allowed much of the racism that's endemic in our society to continue is the inaction of a lot of well-meaning white people. And that's kind of the moment that we find ourselves in. A lot of white people have realized that by not living their lives in ways that are deliberately combating racism in their actions, with their money, with their business, with their words, with their relationships, they are contributing to the problem. And one of the things that I think, to your point, the kind of idea of being uh, a good person means you cannot be racist. One of the things that Ibram Kendi points out so beautifully in this book, and, and critically, I think, is that you can be a good person and still do racist things. When you begin to understand that, as as Kendi puts it, being racist and anti-racist is not so much a noun as it is a verb. It's a way of living. It's a way of conducting your life. It's a way of moving through this world. You begin to understand that actually good people can, in one moment, be actively anti-racist, be confronting racism where they see it, and in the next moment, moment, excuse me, do something completely racist. And and I think that you know, well, we all have to strive to be anti-racist and that is imperative and it's critical and it is urgent. There also has to be this recognition that anti-racism is something that you commit 
you commit to as a white person to living your life in service of, it's not something you ever arrive at. Because in any given moment, if you are not being racist, you can be anti-racist. And if you're not being anti-racist, you're being racist. Sorry, that was a whole lot of word mishmash. Well, I think one thing that is important to understand is that the the reason that the default is that it is racist is because that's that's the status quo in which we are living. Exactly, exactly. And so we know about entropy. Exactly. Very powerful force, right? Exactly. So absent, like an amount of action that can combat entropy, you know, that's where we're going to come back to. So I just think, you know, this idea of being proactive versus sort of passive, um, I think could also be helpful. Like I always put proactively anti-racist because there's that intentionality around like, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put intention behind this. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and so, and also, I, I mean, you know, the word nerd in me when I read the whole thing about verb versus noun, I was like, I love that so much. It um, is. It's really a very yeah, powerful a way to think. Yeah. It is a very powerful thing. And I think back to this, like, and I'm not trying to let folks off the hook, but I, it, my experience is it doesn't tend to be helpful if you, if you're stuck in this, like, but I'm a good person and I'm taking this personally. Exactly. Right. So that would be more around shame, right? I feel like yes. shame. Yeah, intrinsic to you and your identity. So I like I feel like this idea if it's a verb is one of the most empowering gifts that Kendi offers mm-hmm. those that are interested in changing the status quo. Cause in that you're like, oh, it's like, what books am I gonna read? Yes. Where am I gonna order my books? Yes. Absolutely. Businesses. What about black authors? And just to get a different perspective. And, and then in, in in those actions, you start realizing like, ooh. If I don't bring intentionality, most white people are just going to, it's going to be white authors and 100%, you know, all of it. And because so it's, it's just, the default. It's, it's the, the default. default. And by the way, you know, just being gracious, being gracious, not letting ourselves off the hook, but just being gracious. Like, okay, you know, we just had the holidays and I bought some books at, off Amazon. Yeah. That happens. You know, I didn't make the effort, you know, but Interestingly, let's just sidebar, and this might mean be too much information for our listeners, but I did, I became committed to uh, reading more authors of color, particularly women of color authors. Mm-hmm. And I have discovered Beverly Jenkins, who I want to go on record as saying national treasure. Do you know Beverly Jenkins? Maybe I don't. You know. mm, that's great because you're a little higher brow with your reading. She's a <laughs> romance novelist. Oh my God. She combines romance novel, you know, all the like swoony, goofy slightly racy, naughty stuff with historical fiction. Oh, what a gift. Amazing. She, and well, I mean, well-written and I learned, so I just read one, mm, I'm blanking on the title. We'll we'll put links to everything in the show notes set in just before the revolutionary war. Oh, wow. Um, So yes, is it a love story? Absolutely. And by the way, one of the gifts of her books is, you know, from page two, how it's that they end up together. There's no mystery. That's what we need. mystery. You know, like, <laughs> oh, you know, charity's going to end up with Nick and it's going to be great. So it's just like a house is going to happen. But along the way, I learned, I mean, honestly, I feel like I know more about the Revolutionary War and especially the role that Blacks played in it mm-hmm. um, than I did in all of my school. See, you know, that's, a, that's, but this is a perfect point is that, you know, Beverly Daniel Tatum calls calls racism the smog that we breathe. Yes. And the point that that she's making there is if we are white people, we are we are absorbing whiteness. We are absorbing white supremacy. We're absorbing racism without even noticing it. To your point, up until this year, 
it never, and I'm someone who does anti-racism trainings, it never occurred to me to purchase my books from Black-owned bookstores. But that's because my my lens has always been whiteness as the default. And so to your point, I have to actively combat that conditioning. I have to actively try and dispel that smog that I've been breathing my yeah. entire life and actually actively seek out organizations, businesses, authors, writers, producers, creative people that that are not default white. And I have to fight that every single day actively. And that's how I I attempt to be anti-racist. Yeah. You know, I'm mindful often when, when, when we start talking about these things that it's like, you know, and I'm just like, I have to fight that every day. Like it, it can feel very combative. Mm. And so I do want to offer to listeners who are like, that sounds scary or, or I don't want to do it. Or, you know, and I know some listeners are there like beyond there. They're like, let's get to how we integrate this into messaging. We're going to get there in a second. <laughs> but also it's like, Every scrap, I think of Mozart Guerrier, who was the executive director of an organization called 21 Progress. And he was on a panel, this is a number of years ago, but it so struck me. He, you know, somebody said, so no, I'll paraphrase. He said, you know, people ask me why I'm such a fan of diversity and he's a black man. And he's like, I just look at them and I say, there's no downside. There's only upsides to more perspectives and, uh, you know, all the rest of it. He's like, I just, I don't even understand the question really type thing. So, you know, Everything's better, actually. And this means ceding some power and it means opening our eyes in, in ways that can be un initially uncomfortable and in some instances perpetually uncomfortable. Um, I forget what you've said it, but somebody who's like, if you're really into this work and you haven't slightly peed yourself a couple of times, probably you're not really going at it hard enough. Right, right. Because a huge part of reckoning with racism and trying to live your life as a white person in an anti-racist way is reckoning with all the ways that you yeah. have inadvertently or deliberately been racist in the past. And my God, is that painful? It's a reckoning. It is painful. Okay. So with all of that, and again. So two other things, uh, So, because I want to transition into how do we start integrating this into messaging, right? How do we verbify uh, anti-racism into our messaging? The two other episodes that I would recommend that folks listen to are Fleur's episode on the language of racism, great context, and also one that I did with Marlette Jackson um, and Aaron Dowell, who wrote the Harvard Business Review article um, about woke washing and how woke washing your company won't do it. And so sometimes messaging can be, it's almost like she could smear it on things. And that that happens, you know, mm -hmm. smear a little whatnot, diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism into my messaging. So before we go into this, I want to say, listen to those episodes and really be ready to do the work. Like it is not okay. It is not marketing for good if you just integrate a couple words here and there, but within your organization you're not living this, that's, that's not, that is not the intention of this conversation and the rest oh, of the conversation <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Not okay. Not marketing for good, bad marketing. So, okay. Messaging central to all our marketing efforts. I think mm -hmm. we can all agree. We need words. Most of the time, all the visuals are really important too. So when I work with clients, I use a framework that has two types of messaging. One I refer to is foundational messaging and then you have messaging by audience. So foundational messaging does not change by audience, right? This is a collection of sentences that communicate the why, what, who, and how of your work. And since that, that shouldn't change depending on audience, we should not be mm -hmm. shape-shifting on what we stand for. You may resequence them depending on who you're talking to, but these really, 
these are the core essence of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas messaging my audience is linked to, you know, who, who is it? What are their motivations? And how do you, you know, want to engage with each other? So it is within these foundational messaging pieces that I want to talk through how we might integrate anti-racism. And so I'm hoping what we can do is just talk through each one and have a chit chat as we go. So, so high level, I'll say that the, the four foundational pillars, messaging pillars are vision, purpose, mission, and values. So values is kind of underpinning. Now, I don't want to hop too far down this bunny trail, but also brand personality matters in terms of how you externalize the messaging. Sometimes those show up in external messaging, but really they're meant to inform the tone of your messaging. So I include them as a foundational pillar. However, for our conversation, because definitely all four of these pillars are you know, meant for an ex- external audience, but they have to be true internally first. Mm-hmm. So let's start with, let's start with the mission statement and then work backward. Mm. <laughs> so we're going to go mission, purpose, vision, values. Um, okay. So I think it'll be helpful for listeners, maybe, and maybe you too, Kate. <laughs> if I if I define or share how I define each of these, so in my context, which this is by no stretch of the imagination, by stretch of the imagination, this is the only framework, but I have found it to be useful for those who want to change the world. There's lots of other ways to come at this. In this framework, mission is what you do and how you do it. So it's the actions that you take to get to your vision, and it brings your purpose to life. Mm-hmm. Your purpose as an organization is why you exist. So it's your reason for being, it grounds your work and meaning on a day-to-day basis, and it motivates your actions and guides you towards your vision. Mm. So it's a why nestled within another why, which is your vision, which is where you're going and why you're going there, right? So vision expresses what will be better in the world in the future because of the work you're doing today. And it's your inspiration, right? And all of these should be grounded in your values. So the, which are the principles that guide your work, they shape culture and they're, you know, they're a commitment to how you will conduct business and treat others. They guide internal decision-making and external engagement. Okay, so that was a lot. Also listeners, if you're like, wow, too much. Um, <laughs> there is an episode just going over this framework and unpacking these. So um, if your brain just exploded, go listen to that and then you can go back to this one. All right, so because this whole thing started with the mission statement and you very adamantly saying, I, I think you said anti-racist or anti-racism, which like it should have a, it should show up in that. Explain for us um, why you believe that that's where it should show up. Well, that, that's a great question. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, I firmly believe that if a company How do I put it this way? I think in light of the world that we're living in, if a company isn't naming the thing, then they're not doing an adequate job. So what do I mean by that? I mean, I cannot tell you how many watered down statements about diversity, equity, and inclusion I have seen that don't say anything. And this is the point that I'm trying to make. I think that one of the largest I think one of the largest challenges that most organizations face when they're thinking about their mission and they're thinking about their values is they try to encompass everything. They try and put a big old DEI umbrella over sexism, homophobia, racism, ageism, ableism, you know, xenophobia. 
essentially all of the different forms of oppression and marginalization that you see. And by putting the umbrella all over, over all of those things, they essentially don't say anything. And as we have seen this summer, this past year, over the past decade, racism is alive and well. It is not so much, I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago and they said, it doesn't so much make up the fabric of society as it is the fabric of society. Mm. And without, without wow. sounding too much like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, when you think about the ways that racism operates in housing market, job market, economic sector, education, it, it, it really does it is the backbone that this country is founded on. And you don't need to dig too deep into history to realize how, how much it affects everything that we do, the ways that we live our lives, the ways that we conduct business. So my point is essentially by not naming that, by not naming racism as the fabric of society, therefore it guides everything that we do in businesses and organizations, you're missing the forest for the trees in trying to encompass everything under that one umbrella. And yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, so from a messaging perspective, also, when you tell someone you're, you're everything, they remember nothing. Exactly. Exactly. So we don't want that anyway. And, and it is. Uh, so I'm a fan of mission statements that are no more than 12 words, including the name of your organization. I used to be 10, but I realized it's actually can't quite get there. Um, so, so I added two words. Part of the reason, and, and oftentimes I work with clients and oftentimes our mission statements end up being a bit longer than that. However, the experience of having to prune, prune, prune away everything except the essence and it's true for purpose, vision, about all of it, right? Just that pruning is actually, this is a process that leads you to, leaves you with that internal alignment that sustains it over time. So to your, you know, to your point, like if you're just sort of smearing again, some of this language amongst a whole bunch of other things and a bunch of semicolons. So like, we're just going to throw it all in the hopper, mm -hmm. you know, for the most part, people can't remember that. And it's not really actionable. Absolutely. So if these statements aren't actionable, what's the point of investing time and energy into, into doing them, right? They are for marketing. And for I think the first job that they have is actually bringing internal alignment, right? They should be a recruitment tool for you, uh, a retention tool for you, and all sorts of other things. So, so if it's just a whole bunch of words, blah, 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 that's not serving the organization. And for No, not at all. at all. Just like you say, the, the mission statement is like a lighthouse. But I think, and so you should always be able to point to that beacon and say, this is what we're working towards. But I think to your point and what we were talking about in the beginning, there's this added dimension to it. If you borrow Ibram Kendi's, you know, racist versus anti-racist mm -hmm. framework, because that's a way of looking at your mission statement and beginning to think, do the word, you know, do my 12 words, how could they be construed in ways that are anti-racist? How can I use uh -huh. them to yeah. fight racism? So what I'm curious about, mm -hmm. okay, hear me out. I'm curious if what you're saying is you need to be very committed to the language and not just, you know, put a whole bunch there um, as sort of like subterfuge or obfuscating or something, not some other big multi-syllabic word. I mean, really, I think what you're saying is that it should be one of your values, Yes, that is exactly and, and what I'm It should show up everywhere. And so I'm curious about your thoughts. So if an organization was truly committed to this, it would be a value. Mm -hmm. like Anti-racism would be a value. Mm -hmm. 
And then if you're, if you're, if that's seriously a thing, wouldn't it find its way? It might open up the opportunity for it to find its way more specifically. So what does that mean in your vision? What does that mean in your purpose? What does that mean in your mission? Yes, I believe so. I I do. I think that, so for example, Facebook's mission statement is a great example. So Facebook's mission statement, very pithy, to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Great in theory. That is a great lighthouse beacon, right? You can always point to this kind of, they've identified their mission as being open sharing of information, connect the world. Then if you take that and look at the values, the vision, the purpose in an anti-racist versus racist lens, well, what are the ways that that mission could be construed to actually continue racism? How do we know that that Facebook, for example, allows open sharing of ideas? Well, what does that mean if, if people are openly sharing ideas that are harmful and oppressive and racist? That might be their mission, but does it align with their values? Does it align with their vision? Does mm-hmm. it align with their purpose? And if you embed anti-racism into the framework that you use to look at all of these things in tandem, you know, maybe your mission statement doesn't outright state the language of anti-racism in those 12 words that you use, you know, but how do the vision, how do the vision statements and the values further guide and hone that statement to talk about the impact that you want to make in this world? Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, so, so historically, We've talked about mission, vision, values. So purpose is sort of a new addition. And, and I want to give props to, so the Evans School has an incoming dean, um, Jody Sanford, who, you know, wants to do some of this work uh, as, right, to sort of get us all settled and are we all in the head in the right direction. And she feels very strongly about purpose. Um, and so she really invited me to get more specific about the, the sort of job of each statement, because to me, it was sort of obvious. And I think one of the insights I had from, from her invitation being, you know, sort of being given the opportunity to think about that more deeply is that we sort of lumped the why together, right? Mm-hmm. So we we're making the vision statement and the mission statement do too many jobs because we weren't, didn't have the rigor of saying the vision is, is this like, you know, where are we going and why are we going there? And I think that's another place where, you know, we could be so much more specific about what does this world look like, mm-hmm. right? And how, how are you going to give voice to that? Um, and what do you really mean, right? Absolutely. So what, what do we really mean? And then the purpose is how your organization very specifically, right? What's your why? Why do you exist? That's, that's like the very existential thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The answer might be, well, if that's our vision, we, we might not be needed. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I think in some ways, you know, and especially uh, nonprofits who tend to be very heart driven, that, that just would be, that's an uncomfortable truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. So we've sort of mushed, it's like we took purpose and we kind of made some of it go into the vision and some of it go into the mission. And, and so I, you know, I've been using this and it's been helpful in terms of the rigor um, for organizations to be able to say, oh, this is, this is our why. Mm. And then this is how we're doing it, right? Here, here's how we are bringing that to life, right? Yes. So, and, and when I heard uh, your Facebooks, which was a great example, that very much felt like a, a combo meal of a little bit of mission with a little bit of purpose. But For um, sure. Will you reread it? Because I, I don't know. What, yes, it's a little bit of vision, I think. To give people, so this is called their organization. This was from 51 Best Mission Statements. <laughs> a very helpful article. Uh, Facebook, to give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. So I think their vision would be a world that is more open and connected. 
Absolutely. And Absolutely. so what a great opportunity if we were, if, 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 the, if, and I don't know if they do, but if they were an organization that had anti-racism as a value, yes. what might, what specificity might they add to that? Right. So a world that's more open and connected. Do we mean a world that is more aligned around equity and social justice? Mm -hmm. Do we mean a world that is more liberatory for historically oppressed populations? Like by naming what a world that's more open and connected looks like, well, if you if you bear that out, you could say a world that is more open and connected around white nationalist values, you know? Sure. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's the horrific and flip side. I do want, yeah, I want to acknowledge, like, of course, Facebook and all the platforms come up against freedom of speech. Exactly. And this is, I, I think this, this is tricky is business. Of, and that's one of the 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 evil geniuses of beautiful, beautiful things about unspecific mission statements that aren't borne out by these values. If you're not naming the thing, you can essentially do whatever you want. And, and it's all copacetic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that first part to connect, right? Yes. To give people the power to share. Oh, to give people the power to share. Huh. I mean, I wonder if that's a, their purpose or their mission. I feel like yeah. one or the other is missing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, mm -hmm. um, I just think a lot about, you know, it, in anti-racist work, a lot of what we caution against actually is having these kind of binaries of seeing things mm -hmm. because stuff is very gray. You know, something that is anti-racist in one light might actually be racist in another light. And, and you know, even though Kendi's anti-racist versus racist framework is very helpful, there is the danger of the binary there because uh, to your point, Facebook has in many ways used its, its power to connect and share and make the world more open for good. There is a lot, I mean, think of how many social justice movements have really been rooted in Facebook. But then yeah. at the other, on the flip side, you've given a lot of people um, with these horrific racist and oppressive views, a, a megaphone and, and everyone's voice is treated equally. Well, that's both a good thing in some contexts and a bad thing in other contexts. And so it, it's to your point, you know, when you have this purpose and a mission, that can be your lighthouse, that can be your beacon, but it's shining on everything equally, right? It's just kind of moving in a circle. And, and I think that's where, to your point, the values and the vision of where mm -hmm. you want to go is what gives it shape and context. And that's where you begin to imbue anti-racism into the, the work that you want to see in the world you want to create. Yeah, I mean, again, I go back to parts of speech a lot. It's a little bit of a hang up. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, values by definition are nouns. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, listeners, if you're if you're going to be doing this, really first picking your nouns for the values and also the nouns like a better world. There's some adjectives that would be adjectives and nouns, right? Because it's the world is a noun and the adjectives are describing the better world. Purpose and mission are, you know, they're about verbs, especially your mission. Mm -hmm. right? That's about action. What action are you taking? But purpose is also action plus why you're taking that action. And that is actually, I take a verb first approach to mission statements. <laughs> we do. You can ask any of my clients. They're like, yes, we had to pick the verb first. Um, and the reason is because we default to nouns in the English language because it's about 50% is nouns. Um, and so we default to nouns, which nothing bad with focusing on people, places, and things. However, if mission is about action, then you end up with super boring verbs like provide. Um, yes. Give. Provide. Thanks, Facebook. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'll, you know, so, uh, it, it really, it's a specific example of how you can bring rigor into the process 
and yet not have a feel to overwhelm, right? So pick your verb, verbs first uh, for mission and purpose, and then focus on nouns for the for the vision and the values. I mean, in terms of sequencing in general, I recommend doing values, vision, purpose, mission. But sometimes, I mean, if you're if you already have some of these things, and most organizations are going to have mission, vision, values, and not have purpose. I think that that's going to be sort of the new direction that that a lot of you know, organizations and companies that want to change the world, that you're going to need all of these things, especially millennials and Zoomers, like they expect to know this about you. Absolutely. They're not going to buy from you. Oh my God. I, I just, they I don't just, stand for. no, I just read a report from McKinsey that essentially said millennials and, and upcoming Gen Zers uh, were opting not to work for companies that had not explicitly put out an anti-racist DEI statement in wake of the racial uprisings this summer. People want to know what you stand for. They do. They and do. S- silence is speaks volumes, especially when it comes to anti-racism. It it does. And I go back to that article about woke washing won't cut it by Aaron Amarlet, which one of the things I really appreciate about it is it gets specific. So if you read it and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know where we stand, they're like, here, here are some <laughs> key indicators. But one of the things they say is having a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement, whatever you might want to call it, because there was sort of a all of a sudden a proliferation of them. However, it's a great starting place and not enough. And I really am, and I don't have an answer to this, but I, I really am wondering, you could have that statement, but if you're living into values, vision, purpose, mission, I feel like it's a lens through which you should be considering everything. So not have it be a standalone, but instead be integrated into the foundation of who you are as an organization and how that shows up in your messaging. Absolutely. If your if if your anti-racist statement from this summer came out and used language and wording and verbs and nouns that were vastly different from your mission and values and vision then and, and purpose, then that's that's yeah, that speaks up. volume. Yeah. And you know, if you did it good, I mean, yeah, sure, there's always organizations who are like, well, I suppose we ought to do the thing. I mean, it's like greenwashing, bulk washing, this new greenwashing, right? Yep. Um, and so there was a lot of sort of, you know, environmentally friendly statements that came out and then you were like, wow, I don't think you're living that. And this is very similar. I mean, for those of us who are old enough to have lived, lived through that. So again, like if you're listening to this and you're like, well, we did that and we felt good about it. Well, good. I mean, if you meant it, do. And now, again, all of this work is work in progress. It is action. It is verb. So now next action might be to see how that might fit in um, right. with these other statements, which are externalized. And, you know, I, I'm such a believer in the mission statement because it's what people ask. Well, what's your mission mm. for nonprofits? I mean, that's literally the question. They, you know, what do you do? What's your mission? And so, uh, but, but just understanding that those are nestled into and a part of um, and complementary to these other statements, I think is, is important going forward. Absolutely. Okay. I close every interview by asking guests the, the same question. So it has to do with inspiration and motivation. So inspiration, etymologically speaking, means to breathe in. Yes. And motivation is to take action. So we need both. In order to take action, we need inspiration. What inspires you and what motivates you to te- keep doing this work, Kate? Oh, I think what inspires me is uh, is educators writ large, you know, being having done lecturing and and now being uh, an assistant dean of of graduate students, the educators are doing the work. Oh my God, they are out there making magic with precious few resources. They are underfunded and they are overworked. And especially now in this pandemic, they deserve all the gratitude for for keeping the wheels from coming off the bus. So educators inspire me. And what was the second question? What motivates you? (laughs) 
What motivates me? You know, it's funny that we are talking about mission statements because one of the exercises I've done this year is creating my own anti-racist mission statement Ooh. for 2021. Great exercise. And uh, we're, we're, we actually have a worksheet that we're creating in the next few days. So folks can go to my website and access that, that document. Oh, we will definitely put that in show notes. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a 2021 anti-racist roadmap to help you think about what you do. But to that point, uh, what about, what motivates me is thinking about the verb. If we're thinking about verbs to activate Mm -hmm. white people who don't know where to start, but want to do better. Oh, yay. That's really what I'm trying to do in 2021 is help white people hold each other accountable and hold themselves accountable because this movement towards racial liberation is not going to succeed unless we're on board writ large in mass. And so that means that we have to hold space for each other, but we also have to bring each other to the table as well as ourselves to the table again and again and again. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Great mission statement, Kate. Nailed it. Oh my gosh. Those verbs. So much for taking time to educate me. I always learn in every conversation and training night. I'm, Uh, when I have time with you, I end up being skilled up. (laughs) So thank you for educating me and uh, offering your time and expertise to marketing for good listeners. I'm definitely a work in progress when it comes to all this. I am, I am a noun because I'm a person, but I, you know, I'm a verb trying to, trying to do this. So I really appreciate people like you. And of course, Ibram Kendi and so, so, so many others who are gracious enough to help folks along the journey. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you listeners for joining us in this conversation today. As always, keep doing good, be well, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening and thanks for making our world a better place.